Well, I invite you to please stand as we read the Word of God together this morning. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Matthew 11, we will look at verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. And I want us to pay particular attention to verse 29 as we read this scripture this morning. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this passage reminds us at the very beginning that you are the Lord of heaven and earth and that your sovereignty extends to every detail of everything that occurs in life. And Father, again, we praise you for that in light of our brother Chuck this morning. We know that he is in your care, he is in your hands, and so is his wife and his family. And we again pray for your mercy upon them, and we entrust them to you. May you protect him. Father, we thank you that your sovereignty not only extends into the general things of life, but in particular to the arena of salvation. And we thank you that you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us and that the grand reason that we know you is because you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us. We thank you that we know the Son and that we know the Father and that we know the Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are gentle that you are not harsh, you are not severe, you are not unkind, you are not arrogant, you are humble in heart, and you offer rest in our souls. We thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Father, we pray that you would renew our rest in our souls, that you would renew our confidence in Christ, our devotion to Christ. May we do what you say here. May we learn from you, from our gentle and humble Savior. We entrust our time of worship to you. We pray that you would bless our time, that you would enable us, O God, to think deeply and carefully about you and your word and how it relates to our soul and our relationship with you. May you help us to overcome 
all distraction for this brief period of time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 this morning. Let me read them as we begin. The message title this morning is The Supreme Example of Humility. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A number of years ago, Shelley and I were driving through the state of Arizona. And since we were relatively close to the Grand Canyon, we decided to make a, a brief detour from our trip to see it. When we arrived at the Grand Canyon and walked up to the lookout point, we knew that in that moment we were beholding one of the most amazing things our eyes would ever see. The way that I felt when I saw the Grand Canyon is the way that I feel about this text that I have just read to you. It is amazing, it is deep, it is rich, it is nothing short of breathtaking. It is breathtaking because it chronicles the descent of the Son of God. In this passage, the Apostle Paul traces the downward steps of Jesus Christ from the absolute highest position in the universe to the absolute lowest position in the universe. He is going to take us from Mount Everest all the way to Death Valley. Many scholars believe this was a hymn in honor of Jesus Christ. To be sure, it is one of the most theologically rich passages in all of the New Testament. It has been referred to as the gem of Christology. One writer described it this way, the crowning revelation concerning Jesus in the Pauline epistles. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that this passage was one of the most magnificent in the whole Bible, and he is certainly true about that. But as rich as this passage is in terms of its theology, Paul's primary intent was not to give a course on Christology. Paul's primary intent with this passage, listen, beloved, is practical. It is ethical. It is to give us an example to follow. It presents Jesus Christ to us 
as the supreme example of humility and self-sacrifice. You may remember from our previous passages that, or from our previous messages rather, that Paul is appealing to the Philippians to pursue unity in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 2a, we have seen the motives for church unity. At the end of verse 2, we have seen the manifestations of church unity. In verses 3 and 4, we have seen the means of church unity. In verses 3 and 4, Paul is saying that the true obstacle to unity in the church is pride. The only way that we are going to achieve unity in the church is if we rid ourselves of selfishness and pride and in its place pursue humility. The true obstacle, again, to unity in the church is pride, and the true path to unity, beloved, is humility. But the true path to humility is Christ. It is to behold Christ. It is to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul paints this beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ for us as the model, the greatest model of humility that the world has ever seen. And so as we come to verse 5, Paul continues his appeal to the Philippians to be one, to be united together. And really in verses 5 through 8, what we have is the model of church unity. He begins in verse 5 with an exhortation, have this attitude in yourselves. This is the third commandment in the epistle. The first was in chapter 1, verse 27. The second is chapter 2, verse 2. And now here is the third command. The command itself is found in the word attitude. It is the same word that Paul uses twice in verse 2, the same mind. The last phrase, intent on one purpose, both of those phrases contain this same verb found in verse 5. It's the word phreneo. It means to think. It means to have a certain kind of attitude. Paul is exhorting them then to think a certain way, to have a certain kind of attitude within themselves. And he's very specific about what kind of attitude. He says, this attitude. Notice the word this. That points us back to the attitude of humility in verses 3 and 4. This is how you are to think. This is the kind of attitude that you are to have within yourself, namely an attitude of humility. You are to consider others as more important than yourselves. You're not just to be concerned about your own interests, but the interests of others. That is humility. And he says, this is the kind of attitude that Christ had. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also, where? In Christ Jesus. He exhorts them to think like Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to embrace the attitude of Christ, which is humility. I heard a short, short poem this week that I have never heard before, and it reads this way, Me, 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 I love myself. I have my picture on my shelf. That's not a poem worth remembering are not worth printing and putting on your wall, but it does remind us, beloved, that we are naturally a proud people. 
We are naturally in love with ourselves. We love to make much of ourselves. We would rather have others serve us than to serve others. But this is the kind of attitude that we are to avoid if we are to achieve unity in the church. Someone once asked Augustine, what are the most important things for a Christian to remember? He said there are three, humility, humility, humility. That is essential to unity in the church. And so in verses 6 through 8, Paul presents Jesus Christ to us as the supreme example of humility. Jesus Christ is many things to us. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Master. He is our Shepherd. He is our Friend. Listen, He is also our example. He is our model. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, You also became imitators of the Lord. The Lord Jesus is to be imitated. In 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We are to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 2.6, the one who says he abides in him that is in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner that he walked. You and I, beloved, are to walk the same way that Christ walked. We are to imitate his life. That is part of what it means to follow Christ, to be a Christian. The epitome, then, of spiritual maturity is to be like Christ. To think like Christ, to act like Christ, to speak like Christ. According to Romans 8.29, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is the grand, eternal, sovereign purpose of God is that we would become like Christ. In fact, we could define all of the sanctification process as a means or as a time of becoming conformed to the image of of Christ. We cannot, of course, imitate our Lord's miracles. We cannot imitate his acts of redemption, but we can imitate his attitude, his character, in particular his humility. And so now that we have seen this exhortation to humility in verse 5, let's move to the example of humility in verses 6 through 8. And in this example of humility from the life of Christ, we are going to see three steps of descent from the highest position in the universe to the lowest position in the universe. They are printed for you in your bulletin. Step number one, the preexistence of Christ in verse 6. Step number two, the incarnation of Christ in verse 7. And then step number three, the crucifixion of Christ in verse 8. And beloved, we're only going to have time this morning to see point number one in verse 6, the preexistence of Christ. And it is a magnificent step in the descent of the Son of God. So point number one, the preexistence of Christ in verse 6. We're going to look at this with a fine-tooth comb. There is so much detail in here that we do not want to miss a word of it. Verse 6, Paul writes, "...who although he existed in the form of God..." Stop there. You will notice that Paul begins this sentence with a relative pronoun, the word who. What is the antecedent to who? It takes us back to verse 5, to Christ, 
So when he says who, he is talking about Jesus Christ. Paul is going to reveal things to us about the Lord Jesus Christ that we would never know apart from divine revelation. And the first thing Paul says about Christ is that he existed in the form of God. And what he does in this statement is that he takes us all the way back to the pre-incarnate status of Jesus Christ. The word existed is a present tense participle. It is in contrast to all of the aorist tense participles and aorist tense verbs that are going to follow. Being in the present tense, Paul is emphasizing the eternal nature of Christ. He exists, present tense, permanently in the form of God. Jesus was and He is and He always will be in the form of God. From eternity past all the way to eternity future, Jesus exists in the form of God. The word form is a Greek word, morphe. We get English words like morphology from this word. It basically refers to the essence of something. The unchanging, essential being or character of something. And Paul uses this word twice in this passage. He uses it here in verse 6, and he uses it again in verse 7 when he talks about Christ taking the form, the morphe, of a bondservant, of a doulos, of a slave. It's a very critical word in understanding the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Paul contrasts this word morphe with the word schema that he uses in verse 8. It is translated in the NAS as appearance, being found in appearance as a man. Schema refers to the outward form, the appearance, whereas morphe refers to the essential nature of a thing or of a person. Schema is subject to change. Our appearance or the appearance of things is subject to change, whereas morphe does not change. It is changeless. Let me try to illustrate the distinction between morphe and schema. I am a male, as you know. That is my morphe. I will always be a male. But there is something about me that does change, and that is my schema. For example, I used to be an embryo, and then I was a baby, and then I was a toddler, and then I was a child, and then I was a youth, and now I am a young adult. You agree? 38, still a young adult. You know, I, I know I'm pushing middle age. One day I will reach middle age like some of you, and that will be my schema. And then if I live long enough, my schema will be a senior adult. So my morphe is my maleness, which never changes. That is my essential character or being. But my schema, my appearance, my form outwardly is subject to change. And so when Paul says that Christ is in the form of God, the morphe of God, he is saying that the essential nature of Christ is what? Deity. 
deity. Christ possesses the very nature of God. In fact, I believe that is how the NIV translates this verse. The nature of God. Christ is a divine being. He is God. He is God. So listen. In this first phrase here in verse 6, Paul is affirming two critical truths about the person of Jesus Christ, things that are essential to know about who he is, namely his preexistence and his deity. Do you understand that about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand that we are talking about somebody who is preexistent? Somebody who has always been, somebody who has always existed, and somebody who is God. That is how Paul begins to unfold Christology, the nature of Christ. And he really combines the two. We could call this pre-existent deity. That is who Christ is. We have Christmas coming, and when we think of Christmas, we think of Christ coming into the world, and rightly so. But you need to understand that before Jesus ever came into the womb of Mary, before he was ever born in Bethlehem, listen, he was. He existed way before his conception. He existed way before Bethlehem. And this, my friends, makes Jesus Christ massively different from you and me. You and I did not exist until we were conceived in our mother's womb. We are finite creatures, and that is when our life began. But with Jesus Christ, what Paul is saying is that he is the eternally pre-existent God. He has always been, and he has always been in the form of God. Now let's explore this a little further in some passages that maybe you have never thought about in this way. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 1. And this is to simply illustrate that Christ is in fact the eternally pre-existent God. 1 Corinthians 10 beginning in verse 1. Paul is recounting the history of Israel. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What is that? That's the Exodus. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was whom? Christ. Do you understand what Paul is saying about Christ? Way before his conception in Mary's womb, all the way back into the ancient history of Israel, in the wilderness wanderings, Christ was with them. He's preexistent. If you go to Matthew 23, 37, we will find an affirmation by our Lord himself about his preexistence. Matthew 23, 37 a very familiar passage to us. This is in the context of his final week before he is crucified, Passion Week. As you know, he was roundly rejected by Israel and murdered by Israel. 
In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. What does Jesus say about himself here? I mean, obviously he is saying that he is full of compassion His heart still longs for the people of Israel, even though that they have rejected God so profoundly. But please notice that Jesus is the one who has tried throughout the history of Israel to protect them from judgment. It is He who has wanted on many occasions in the past to gather them together as a mother would her chicks. In other words, Jesus is affirming his existence during the ancient history of Israel. Now let's look at another example, John 8. And this one, I believe, is the most clear testimony from Christ himself about his own eternal preexistence. John 8, verse 56. The context of the chapter is that Jesus is engaged in controversy with the Jews, which was often the case. Jesus is being challenged and attacked by Jewish unbelieving people. He says in John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? In other words, Jesus, what you were saying is absurd. I mean, Abraham existed 2,000 years prior to this conversation. They understand the absurdity of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not even 50 years old. How in the world could Abraham have seen you? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was 2,000 years ago, I am. He not only affirms his preexistence, but he uses the name of God from Exodus 3, Yahweh. I am. I am. In John 12, 41, another example of this, this time from the Apostle John himself, John 12, 41, he has just quoted Isaiah about the blindness of the people, the hardness of the people, They have rejected Jesus Christ in spite of all the amazing evidences he has given to prove that he is the Messiah. And he says here in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. The context of the hymn refers to Christ. You may remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah had the vision of God who was the thrice holy God exalted in the temple. And the angels were constantly saying, holy, holy, holy is God. That was when he was called into the ministry that he conducted. And what he is saying here, John is saying that Isaiah, when he saw the glory of God in Isaiah 6, he in fact saw Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Again, this affirms that Jesus is the eternally pre-existent God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, a verse that we all know very well, John writes, in the beginning was the Word. This verse takes us back to eternity past. 
I mean, way beyond the wilderness wandering, way beyond Isaiah, way beyond Abraham. Before time began, Jesus Christ was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Before the creation of the world, Jesus Christ is in face-to-face communion with God the Father. And then he says, and the Word was God. Again, Jesus Christ is God. He is a divine being. He is eternally preexistent in the form of God. And because he is God, he possesses all of the substance, all of the attributes, all of the abilities of God himself. In verse 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator God. Next time you go to a science class and someone tries to tell you that the world came into being and you came into being through evolution, raise your hand and say, with all due respect, sir or ma'am, I would like to say that Jesus Christ made the world. He is God. He is the creator. In John 1.15, we have a very interesting statement. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is John the Baptist, and guess what? John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. And yet he says, Jesus existed before me. And the only way that could be true is if Jesus Christ were the eternally pre-existent God. So we ask the question, when Jesus came, where did he come from? He came from heaven. He says this repeatedly in the Gospel of John, I come from heaven, I come from heaven, I come from heaven. He repeatedly says that he was sent by the Father. He is sent. That is missional language, but it is also implying his pre-existence. He didn't just begin his existence when he came. He is actually sent from eternity past into finite time and space and history. In John 5, if you would look there at verse 16, I want you to see another example of this. John 5, 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They had a terrible time with Jesus breaking what they thought was the Sabbath. He was not breaking the Sabbath. He was actually breaking all of their traditions. And Jesus would go out of his way to break their traditions and to demonstrate that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. So they took great offense with Jesus. He says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. You know what he is saying? God works on the Sabbath, my Father works on the Sabbath, and I do too. And they understand, in verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him for two reasons. He breaks the Sabbath, in their opinion, and he claims to be God. Now, some say that Jesus never claimed to be God. For anyone to say that reveals a tremendous, utter ignorance of the Gospels. In John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. That is nothing short of a claim by Jesus to be God. His opponents understood it. In verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In other words, this was not the first time they wanted to stone him to death. 
Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stunning me? I mean, that is even somewhat sarcastic. Which good work are you going to kill me for? Jews answered in verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Listen, those who were right there listening to Jesus understood exactly what he was claiming about himself, that he was God, that he was equal with God. In John 14, 9, you remember what he said to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen whom? You've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. God is spirit. He does not have flesh and bones. We cannot see him with the natural eye. But Jesus Christ has made God visible. Physically, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things. That again affirms his preexistence. So again, who is Jesus Christ? He is the eternally preexistent God. Do you believe that? Do you affirm that? So, beloved, it is utter nonsense for someone to say that they think Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. It is an absurdity to say that you think Jesus was a great teacher when you don't believe what he says, especially about himself. There are only three options about Christ. He is either a liar, he is either a lunatic, or he is either the Lord. And the Bible confirms repeatedly over and over again that he is the Lord God of heaven and earth. That is who he is. Even the demons in the Gospels believe that Jesus is God. The demons have a better theology than many seminary professors. And now as we come back to Philippians 2, again Paul is affirming that Jesus is in the form of God. His essential nature is deity. And he uses another statement in verse 6 to further affirm the deity of Christ. He says, equality with God. The Greek word for equality is isos. It means equal. We get our word isosceles, triangle, from this Greek word. Do you remember that back in geometry class? That is a triangle with two equal sides. It's equal. And that is what Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. He is in the form of God. He has equality with God. He is essentially saying the same thing with two different phrases, that Jesus Christ is God. Now I ask, why does Paul start like this? I mean, I thought all of this was about the humiliation of Christ, not the deity of Christ. Listen very carefully. The reason why Paul begins this great example of humility by affirming the deity of Christ is to show you just exactly who Jesus Christ is. And to reaffirm to you the very first step in his condescension. The very first step in his descent. The very first step in the life of Jesus Christ as our model, listen, is the highest place in all of the universe. He is the eternally preexistent God who enjoyed all of the rights, all of the privileges of being God. 
He existed in glory. He was the object of worship by angels and by redeemed men. He enjoyed face-to-face communion with God Himself. And with that in mind, Paul begins to show us the humility of this one being who is the most exalted being in the universe. Even though Jesus Christ is the eternally preexistent God, and even though He enjoyed all of the rights and privileges of being God, He says He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is an amazing statement. This is stunning. I mean, this is more breathtaking than seeing the Grand Canyon. This is the attitude of Christ. Listen, in verse 6, there is no action. It's all attitude. The action begins in verse 7. The phrase, a thing to be grasped, is all from one Greek word, and it is a difficult word to translate. There are two different meanings the word can have. Number one, it can refer to a thing that is seized unlawfully through robbery, and that is why the King James and the New King James translate it as he did not regard it robbery to be equal with God. But, beloved, I humbly suggest to you that that is not the best translation of this word. If you have a more current translation, it will not use the word robbery. The word can also refer to anything that is clutched, anything that is embraced, anything that is clung to, anything that is prized, anything that is grasped. And that is the idea. I mean, we all know what it is like to grab hold of something in life that we don't want to let go, like our family, like our health, like our money, like maybe our home, our children. Listen carefully. Christ had the opposite attitude when He existed in eternity past regarding all of the rights and privileges that were His in heavenly glory. Jesus wasn't willing to clutch his divine rights and not let them go. He didn't say, all of these are mine and I'm never going to let them go. I'm never going to let go of glory. In other words, he's willing to yield them. In other words, he is humble. In other words, he is selfless. Selfless. I love what Jeff Thomas said, quote, God didn't have to pry his son's fingers open as he clung tenaciously to the arms of the throne of heaven. The father wasn't ever forcing the son to leave for Bethlehem. The father didn't conjole the son or threaten the son or plead with the son to step down and make himself nothing. There wasn't any kind of argument within the Trinity for Christ to leave or to humble himself because he had that attitude already. Another writer said, God sent forth his son, and his son did not refuse to be sent. He did not refuse to be made poor. He did not refuse to beggar himself. He did not refuse to become flesh. This is the attitude of Christ. I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible has the best translation of this phrase. It reads, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. It wasn't for his own advantage. So what was the attitude of Christ toward his exalted position? He did not regard it as something to be grasped, to be used for his own advantage. 
Romans 15, 3, for even Christ did not please himself. What is the attitude of Christ, beloved? It is humility. It is selfless. Peter O'Brien said Jesus refused to use for his own glory, or let me read it over again, Jesus refused to use for his own gain the glory that he had from the beginning. Unlike many oriental despots who regarded their position for their own advantage, Jesus understood that equality with God did not mean getting but giving. His attitude is not because I am the most exalted being in the universe. It's all about me getting, getting, getting. It was all about giving, giving, giving. Again, he is the supreme example of humility, the supreme example of being selfless. Beloved, that's the point of verse 6. Paul is describing the attitude, the mind of Christ. He is the supreme model of humility. He perfectly fulfills verses 3 and 4. And so as we turn the attention to ourselves, if we are going to be like Christ, we must be willing to forego our rights and privileges in order to serve others. And that's exactly what Christ did. The motto of Jesus is not to be served, but to serve. That is what encapsulates his whole life. Beloved, if you have the mind of Christ in you, you will contribute to the unity of the church. If you do not have the mind of Christ in you, you will not contribute to the unity of the church. Now next time we are going to move from the attitude of Christ to the action of Christ. As we conclude, if you would take your bulletin and look at the meditation theme. The theme is imitating the humility of Christ. We have two points to consider and to meditate upon. Number one, even though Christ enjoyed all of the rights and privileges of being the eternally pre-existent God, he was willing to give them up for our sake. And number two, if we are going to have the same attitude as Christ, we will be willing to give up our own rights and privileges in order to serve the needs of others. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ, and we are stunned and amazed and overwhelmed at his attitude of humility and selflessness. We thank you that he is the eternally preexistent God who enjoyed all of the rights and privileges of glory and of being divine, and yet he was willing to forego those rights and those privileges so that he might serve us. Father, enable us to have the same mind as in Christ. May we all contribute to the unity of the church as we exemplify the character and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we pray that you would do this for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.